Welcome to the latest episode of the Informing Choices mini-pod. Politics can be defined as activities associated with decision-making in groups or other forms of power relations between individuals and groups, including the distribution of resources or status. Entrepreneurship is the creation or extraction of value entailing change and risk encountered in starting up or conducting business. So how might entrepreneurial thinking play a role in the future of politics? How might political entrepreneurship support policy development, implementation of local initiatives, and support wider public engagement with political processes? To discuss the future of political entrepreneurship, marketing consultant, writer, and futurist with a keen interest in the future of politics, Michael Maschioni, joins me on the podcast now. Michael, welcome back to the Informing Choices mini-pod. Tell us a little bit about you and your work, and particularly your forthcoming book. Right. Well, good to be with you, Steve. So I've had a particular interest in innovation in general, and most of the areas uh, of innovation that I've covered has really been in sort of technological and business innovation. And, you know, that led me to thinking more in terms of how innovation strategies and principles could be applied in politics and beyond sort of the more common forms of innovation that people are familiar with in politics, social media, basically focusing on reinventing government through political entrepreneurship. And it basically utilizes some of the same principles of entrepreneurship in the business sector. So those principles, including risk-taking, forming new alliances, mobilizing uh, assets, uh, and in particular, I profiled two politicians from different countries um, from very different political perspectives, uh, President Macron of France and uh, Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona. Uh, and I felt that they were you know, emblematic, the approach that they were taking of, of political entrepreneurs, though political entrepreneurs do not necessarily have to be politicians. You know, they can be media figures, they can be event organizers involved in politics and that sort of thing. But in any case, I thought those two politicians exemplified political entrepreneurship. Emmanuel Macron focused to a large extent on developing a broader and more solid infrastructure for technology development and technology entrepreneurship for startups, not only in France, but from all over the world. Um, in the case of Doug Ducey, he also established lower regulations or less restrictive regulations and lower taxes to entice technology companies to come to Arizona and experiment with their new technologies and developing. Uh, and in particular, one of the industries that he attracted was the self-driving industry. So he was able to, again, entice them to experiment autonomous vehicles in Arizona and even though they had some setbacks, uh, it, it helped to, you know, provide more stimulus for the industry and help them learn how to, you know, market and develop their uh, markets better. In terms of well-known or prominent uh, in Europe, include the NEOS, um, New Austrian Liberal Forum, uh, the Alternative in Denmark, and the Five Star Movement in Italy. Fascinating. You talk about political entrepreneurship, which sounds to me like political innovation or a part of political innovation. 
But what do you think are the critical trends driving this innovation, driving political entrepreneurship in both national and international politics? Well, I think one of the key trends is simply that you know traditional methods of uh, operating governments have reached limits in terms yeah. of resources, in terms of uh, well, financial resources, human resources, and government has been perceived as not working as efficiently as people would like. Also, having and open up new avenues for innovation and driving political entrepreneurship, um, economic development, developing new uh, job opportunities, especially in new technology areas. And that's certainly true of both Emmanuel Macron and, uh, and Doug Ducey. And, you know, I, I think also that political entrepreneurs are better suited to forming new, not only new partnerships, but greater collaboration with the public. And I think that's another aspect of this that um, is driving, you know, the trend in that direction. So, so is part of this as well about reigniting public engagement, do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a big part of it. And in, in the book, you know, I think some of the principles, uh, some of the strategies that I discussed that are also ver have been very effective when applied properly uh, are, you know, strategies like crowdsourcing and gamification that are used, mm. again, in the business sector. And that's... Yeah. So, I mean, I imagine we're starting to see some examples of, um, of public policy design uh, through use of entrepreneurial thinking. So what are the prime examples that we see of experimental policy making as a result of entrepreneurship, do you think? Well, just in general, you know, basically uh, futures and foresight groups in governments at the national, local level um, are increasingly focused on project design and on experimental policy design rather than just gathering research and issuing reports. Yeah. So these are considered to be more practical approaches. Uh, so one of the best examples of that is the Mayor's Office of New Urban Mechanics in Boston, which is developing projects, experimental projects in various areas you know, for the city in housing and mobility transportation and leisure and their approaches to develop this across agencies so not just in a siloed way uh, and for example in the housing area they develop projects uh, examining the possibility of developing affordable housing literally on top of existing city buildings or next to them um, developing intergenerational housing for graduate students so they're looking you know at projects like that Experimental Finland, which was, uh, you know, kind of a cross-agency uh, mandate of the Finnish government, it's no longer in operation. They placed a lot of emphasis on experimenting, again, across agencies and developing sort of an experimental platform that can inspire experiments in different, you know, in other agencies of the government and even outside the government in Finland. And it turned out to be, you know, very effective. And they kind of leverage best practices in terms of the experiments that worked out. It's, it sounds from what you're saying there that the collaboration both across different local and national government uh, departments, but also probably collaboration between the public and the private sector 
is going is a critical part of that. Is is that part, do you think, of increasingly open government as open government relates to innovation? Is is that a critical enabler? Yes, it is. And in fact, crowdsourcing is perhaps one of the best examples of open innovation mm. government. Uh, and I mean, that is, there's been a big push, again, to enlarge the scope of input, to develop policies that are, you know, more widely accepted and more, more effective. And that's the need, you know, for input from wider sources. And again, that would be a characteristic of political entrepreneurship to draw on input mm. from varying players. One of the things I was going to mention, uh, there was an interesting comment made by the chief innovation officer of San Jose, and he believes that in the near future, there will be many projects that have been traditionally you know, conducted by the government, undertaken by the government, that will actually be, in a way, outsourced to nonprofit organizations, because he believes they'll be more effective and agile in developing these projects in a more cost-effective way. Is, is part of that perceived potential effectiveness almost taking the politics out of the decision-making process, do you think? I mean, what, one of the things I'm thinking of is, you know, we often hear in the UK the role that politics play in the direction that policy relating to national health service is conducted. So taking party politics out of the decision-making process, is that one of the potential benefits of using NGOs to support policy development and implementation? Yes, it, it is. I mean, I think, again, you know, really the aim of, uh, and by the way, there are experimental policy groups like Dark Matter Labs that are developing, you know, these kinds of experimental mm. uh, public policy projects independently, but in conjunction with cities, with, you know, governments at the local and national level. Yeah. Um, so I see kind of, I, I don't know whether I would say that it will be just simply outsourcing projects to the private sector entirely, but there'll be greater collaboration. The last question I've got is, is about emergent forms of government and, and what we might see and where we might see it in the future. And I guess to some extent, we've already started to see the birth of virtual nations. Um, futurists seem to have been talking about city-states for a number of years, and also the idea of how government might be formed in space, be that uh, private sector occupancy on the moon, on Mars, or even in, in space stations. So, so what are the kind of emerging forms of government do you think that we might see in the future? Are any of those likely to, uh, to come to pass? Right, well, all of them are, are at a pretty early stage and uh, many of them will take a while to you know, develop to any significant level. I mean, let's start with virtual nations. You know, there've been a number of attempts at that. I mean, BitNation is, is one uh, virtual nation that's up, that's driven by blockchain and that's used to record legal records, identity records and things of that sort. Mm -hmm. uh, these are operating at a very small level uh, and they have very few citizens, if you can call it that. You know, virtual nations face a couple of obstacles such as their lack of you know, sovereignty. I mean, they're not accepted by sovereign nations. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, they lack land. They lack, you know, physical space. And so that kind of limits some of their uh, potential. But uh, I do see that developing more significantly because you can basically establish these nations with much less difficulty in terms of cost, in terms of resources, 
Uh, and, you know, obviously with, you know, the rise of social media and the internet, there's, it's very, it's not that. Sorry to interrupt, Michael. Could the, could the growth and increasing interest in the metaverse actually create space for something that we might become more recognizable as a virtual nation, do you think? Uh, yes, and, and the other reason that, you know, they're important is that they could be essentially labs for government, mm. you know, projects. And that's why I say they could be satellites for larger physical nations. Yeah. And I see that kind of situation be becoming more prominent, you know, in, in the not too distant future. Yeah. Um, let's take space nations. That is really something that, again, is further out in the future. There are a lot of challenges. I mean, one of them is just a basic challenge in terms of living in space and dealing with the conditions in space, you know, with sort of thinner atmospheres and, you know, the necessity to have sufficient oxygen to survive. And one of the people that I spoke to, an astrobiologist, he pointed out that one of the issues with nations in space will be who controls, who has access and controls the oxygen supply. And uh, yeah. that particular body, whether it's a government or whatever, will exercise more leverage over those that don't have that. So that's one thing. The other thing is basically how resources will be allocated just generally. And I think I mentioned to you before, one concept that has been proposed by Mark Frazier of this new Hanseatic League in space would be an alliance of different communities in space that would be working together and they would lease land and, you know, exercise some influence apart from major nations. And then they would also test, these, this, these kinds of nations would be testing, you know, basically projects, habitat projects on Earth and, and, and using, in fact, virtual media and things of that source, using the metaverse to simulate conditions on, on, on yeah. the, um, space, you know, habitats. Absolutely fascinating. And what about city-states? What, what, what do we imagine the, the, the future for city-state might be? Obviously, a lot of people often point to uh, to Singapore, but but equally in the UK, the the role of London, you know, London effectively voted to stay in the European Union and the rest of um, England voted to leave the European Union, so the whole country leaves. So, you know, do we see a potential movement in cities becoming state-like entities? Uh, yes, I think, again, that will take a longer time to develop for various reasons. But, uh, you know, the example that you mentioned about London is very true. One of the reasons, one of the reasons why city-states uh, may develop is simply because cities have, you know, a certain amount of power and resources mm. on their own. They have the capability to experiment more effectively than on a national or even regional level. Uh, and they have different interests a lot of times from the country in which they're situated. So they have, you know, they would have a, a, an impetus to carve out their own territory. The other thing is that the success of special economic zones uh, in certain areas around the world, like Shenzhen and China, um, kind of give, give some hope for, you know, more impetus for city-states to be created and to, to thrive. So I definitely see that happening, although Again, it's going to be probably further out in the future, maybe 20 to 25 years from now. 
Well, Michael, that was absolutely fascinating. We've gone from things that I think people people could probably recognise in terms of uh, local policy and local initiative development, uh, particularly around social issues, all the way through to the potential for government and governance in space. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, tell me, how can people get hold of you if they want to learn more about what you do? Yes, uh, they can contact me by email. Uh, my email address is m m m a s c i o n i at aol.com. Well, Michael, once again, thank you so much for your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Do let your friends and colleagues know about the Informing Choices Minipod, and there'll be another episode along very soon.